I think digital identity will be the most crucial enabler for safe and secure interactions in our future economy. And that's our focus for this episode of NAB Digital Next. I'm Brad Carr of NAB's digital data and analytics team. And our guest today is Joni Brennan. Joni is the president of the Digital Identity and Authentication Council of Canada, or DIAC. And of course, Canada is a market we look to on this topic, an economy with a lot of commonalities with Australia. And they've also made some tremendous strides on the identity journey already under the leadership of Joni and the DIAC team. We'll hear from Joni and then my NAB colleague, Olaf Gru, will join me to draw some of the lessons from her insights and how we can apply those down here. But firstly, Joni, thank you for taking time out from the lovely summer in Vancouver to join us and welcome to NAB Digital Next. Thanks so much for the invitation. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Well, it's great to, to reconnect. We, we dealt a lot um, previously um, during my time in Washington and, uh, and even there, I think all over the world, we looked to, to what you'd already achieved in Canada. You've built a great digital identity ecosystem there, and I want to get into some of the specific elements, but maybe if we start with some of the fundamentals of what you've built and what DIAC has achieved, what have been the key success factors for you in building that collaboration across public and private sectors and in advancing the the Pan-Canadian Trust Framework? I would say in terms of the fundamentals for us here in Canada, I think, number one, we start from the place of recognizing that this is a continuous journey. And so we need to continue to work together. Um, there's, there's kind of a significant and sustained commitment to working together to advance digital identity. So recognizing that we're on a journey and this is a space that will continue, I think, is one of the fundamental pillars. But I would also say one of the fundamentals, you know, maybe even in advance of that is recognizing that the space is a collaborative. And so I truly believe that it does take a village um, to move forward on digital identity. And so when we think about that space as being um, a collaborative by design, it puts us into a place and a mindset that we recognize that financial institutions in the payment space have something very important to offer, that the governments have something very important to offer, um, academia and others. We, we really are in a collaborative ecosystem. And I'd say so starting from a place of, of collaboration um, is one of the fundamentals as well. Maybe of most most relevance to this conversation is that for us, particularly in the um, in the DIAC, we were born out of the global financial crash of 2008, 2009. There was a recognition, um, the, the Minister of Finance at the time had called for a review of the payment system. And so we came out of recommendations from that payment system um, review. And so based on that, um, we have very strong participation of the financial sector, of course, who have to fulfill Know Your Customer and anti-money laundering um, requirements. So so for us, um, you know, b- building on um, economic growth, um, economic benefits for all, and focusing on the digital economy, which is global, uh, I think that's that's one of our key, that's part of our key DNA and our fundamentals for who we are. Um, and I think that brings us into a lot of commonality um, with other places around the world, including Australia. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that notion of where you want to bring together things like government credentials together with the trust services that others, including in finance, can provide, and that linkage from starting with finance and payments and then extending into to other areas of the economy, I think is a, a really important one. Perhaps if we could could flip it a little journey and, and bring in the other part of the, the ecosystem that we need to collaborate with, and of course, that's the users. And, and the model that you have in Canada, like what we're aspiring and, and seeking to build in Australia, is very much about empowering users with choice and giving the, the privacy and protection supports that they need in terms of minimising the, the data that needs to be transmitted. 
was wondering if you could talk a little about that and, and whether there are particular use cases that's gained the most traction in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so working in a uh, prioritizing a user-centered approach and so uh, ensuring that the work that's done um, is to the benefit of people, um, I think I think this is one of the reasons of starting with the economy. Uh, the, it, it, having good jobs, good economic opportunities is important for everyone. So that that's a that helps to bring public and and private um, together. Um, so user centered design is one of the priorities for us, as well as um, of course uh, privacy and personal data protection. And along with that, what we think is important is personal data control and empowerment. Um, and so as we um, as we look forward, I think that from a use case perspective, uh, for us within the, the DIAC, we are most interested in those use cases that have both public sector and private se- sector intersections. And so these are the ones where um, typically where someone would say, hey, show us your government issued ID, you know, maybe to open up that bank account or to get or do that more valued um, transaction. So so quite often, you know, as we go through lives as, as just regular people, we intersect with public sector and private sector all the time, and this is where a lot of the value is. And so we we find that space to be most interesting. This is what brings us back to um, the financial sector, to to loans, to to buying a house, to securing our uh, to securing our benefits from public sector, bringing that into our our bank accounts, uh, for example. So yeah. For us, the, I think the most exciting use cases are the ones that intersect that public and private. Um, I think they're most exciting as well because they really do reflect how we operate in our daily lives. We don't only operate with governments and we don't only operate with uh, private sector. We Everything kind of, you know, should really revolve around us. So I think that's of most interest. Um, and then, you know, the piece around empowerment. Uh, there, there is still work to be done in this space, and as we, you know, as I noted earlier, I think we, we always have to look at this work as being a journey. And so, having those strong privacy protections also has to be about, you know, privacy isn't only about blocking off information; it's about deciding what information we want to share and for what purpose. And so, that empowerment piece of the puzzle, that data empowerment, is something that we continue to build in and around, build on and around. Um, and I would say, particularly when we're focusing on uh, ways that we can work together to build public trust. We know we're in an ecosystem that has a lot of misinformation and disinformation right now. And so having those principles of, of, of transparency around what data exists about us, um, what data is authoritative that exists about us, where we can use that data, making sure that we have the ability to use that data and that's part of our rights structure and that we have choices around using that data. I think those are important um, foundations for, for building and sustaining um, public trust around these systems um, as well. Johnny, uh, of course, building this ecosystem comes with a lot of challenges and a lot of barriers we need to overcome. And I was struck by the, there was a great recent survey that DIAC published, uh, and we'll share the link of that for, for all of our audience to, to look into, because there's a lot of great content in it. And I'm just going to pick out one item that stood out for me. It's on slide 15, in which um, respondents were, were asked uh, to categorise for their organisation or for their sector what were some of the barriers that, that were there for them to be able to adopt digital identity services? Um, and it gives a great snapshot of, of issues of where there might be government policy or legislative changes needed. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that. 
Yeah. Um, so one of the things we do in the DACA is we do these industry surveys uh, to hear back of the voices from industry. We also do some great user perspective research, some, some user research as well. So, so please have a look at that if you have an opportunity. But in this case, um, we, we're working to get at the I would say real or perceived barriers around adoption for digital identity. And so, um, you know, what's come back there is that um, what we see, at least in the Canadian ecosystem, is that there should be more clarity on the legislative side, on the policy side, with regard to um, again, that user-centered design. And so policy, let's say, that is authoritative, let's say from the federal government, for example. So federal government should have in place policy that says that um, when the sub the data subject, the person, um, that they that the government's job is not done until that authoritative data that's in that card or that passport is also made available to us as digital, maybe for in our phone or in our digital wallets, for example, um, that they have, uh, not only do we have the right to have that data available to us, but they have to finish the job by making that data available to us. And that uh, we can be able to use that data um, for the transactions that we would like to use it for. And uh, that the in this, maybe in this example, the government agency also has to then accept that data back for, for usage. And to be frank, there, there is not clear policy or, or legislation that maps that out right now. And that's both at the federal levels and at the provincial levels are different um, orders of government. So uh, for us, I think we'd like to see some much clearer policy um, and when we get down into the financial institution uh, perspective there, for example, um, we may be able to, a financial institution may be able to, um, from a know your customer and any money laundering perspective, they may be able to prove and defend that a particular digital identity credential or data around a digital identity um, is, is, is valid for know your customer and any money laundering purposes. But yet still the policies are looking for things like what is your um, physical address of record, but maybe you, know, you don't live in Canada. So some of these more remote and global use cases um, from a defense perspective, you'd be able to defend it from a KYC AML perspective, but the policies and the processes around it aren't quite um, there yet. So, so there is some work to be done. I think the technology is actually very capable. Um, there's some catch up to be done at the different orders of government from a policy perspective and internally within organizations around how they fulfill and what their processes are, in this case, for something like know your customer and any money laundering. A few great points you make there, Johnny, that I want to pick up, and, and you've already alluded there to that scenario of, of immigrants uh, or people that are, are relocating is one, one scenario. Um, you made the comment earlier about inclusion and how we're wanting this digital identity ecosystem to be inclusive, and, and I kind of see two big areas of priority there. One is that immigrant scenario, and we want to be able to recognise, not only identify people, but to be able to recognise things like their professional or trade accreditations that they bring with them. We also have the scenario of some of the populations we might have, for instance, in our Indigenous or First Nation communities where some people perhaps didn't were born without having the traditional formal government credentials. I was wondering if you can, can talk us through any particular examples or opportunities you're seeing emerging in, in how we can support those populations. 
Yeah, there's certainly work to be done on the uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, and and particularly that that immigrant um, story or that refugee's journey. Um, you know, going through all of your verifications with governments, and then uh, you know having the right to say, okay, we've have that that proofing package for who we are now. Please, um, federal government, hand that over to my local provincial government, my municipality, or my bank at my direction, of course, as the immigrant or as the refugee. Um, so, so, so we need some enablement policy there. Um, from a diversity, equi equitability, um, and inclusion perspective, there's so much work to be done in that space. Um, we, at the at this current time that we're doing this podcast, we're reviewing that uh, work. So, how for how we can build that in more um, by design um, into the Pan Canadian Trust Framework, and how we ensure that that's represented in our Pan Canadian Trust Framework. We have to consider um, social equity, um, gender biases. Um, uh, sexuality. Um, there's so many spaces uh, to to be accounted for uh, and amplified and represented, and that doesn't even begin to address um, the needs of our indigenous populations. Uh, the indigenous populations, the First Nations populations, are not ubiquitous. They do not all have the same perspective, and so even within uh, you know, and within that. Um, ecosystem, there is a lot of diversity there um, to be accounted for. So there's a lot of um, listening to be done, a lot of learning to be done, um, and 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 also ensuring that uh, you do your best job possible to enumerate uh, potential unintended consequences. Um, and so we really have to work to build that engagement and that representation and that amplification within our ecosystem, um, within the tools that we design, um, while also not putting the burden on making sure that those populations have the equal opportunity, the equity and the representation and the amplification, making sure that we're not burdening them with uh, that they have to put this into the design and they have to be there. And that's the only way that it's going to be represented. So this is something that requires a lot of investment, uh, again, over time investment and, and working through uh, different representative organizations, different um, departments. Um, and, and the other piece that I didn't mention here as well is people, uh, you know, accessibility. This is another area as well. People who may not be able to uh, leave their home, may not be able to access the same kinds of tools and may, in fact, even be more motivated to use these systems than, than the average user. So this is an incredibly complex space that requires, again, significant and sustained investment. And we're working on that path now and, and to, to be able to do much more in that space and get much more of that representation without burdening those um, individuals and those, um, those groups um, so that we can make sure that they're uh, represented and have all the opportunities. Yeah, it's an area I think we, we need to each keep looking at and where we can learn from each other. And, and also, uh, I know Union Bank of the Philippines is doing a lot of work in how they can connect people in some of their remote villager communities uh, into the system as well. Uh, it's a, a great area of opportunity for us all to do a lot of good. Um, yeah. Johnny, uh, to, to conclude, I want to actually come back to, to something you said at the outset, and you related to, you know, DIAC's early stages and the early mission coming out of the global financial crisis. And you mentioned the point about the fact that we are in a global marketplace. That point about international interoperability is increasingly important to us all. Um, Interested in in anything you see that that we in Australia could be doing to support the development and the progress that that you've made in Canada, also I see the the Nordic countries are probably the other ones I put alongside Canada that have been at the forefront that that we're all looking to follow. 
Um, you've done a lot of work also recently with the Human Technology Foundation with some recommendations, both the Canadian and European policymakers. So, so as you look across the, the globe and as you look to, to people like us in Australia, you know, what can we be doing to help support this, this global journey? I think there are multiple ways of addressing this uh, this area of work to be done. And what we have to do as we're doing this is recognize that, um, you know, at least from my own view, digital identity is an intersection of, of governance and culture and, 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 you know, that has a lot of intersectionalities to it. Um, so we may not have exactly the same procedures or exactly the same ways forward to reach um, outcomes. So, you know, having um, trust frameworks, like uh, Australia has a trust framework, Canada has a trust framework. Uh, you, there, there are different uh, jurisdictional-based trust frameworks. There are different industry-based trust frameworks. Australia has done some fantastic work in that space. And so we're all, you know, watching each other and cheering each other on from our jurisdictions about how we can move forward. So I think we have to stay in line with each other as best as we can that way. Um, I think having practical tools like um, mappings between these trust frameworks show us where the overlaps are, where the deltas are. I think these are really practical tools moving forward. And then I would also say, uh, you know, we should be leaning on uh, things that areas where we do already have commonality as well. And so one of those areas from an international perspective is anti-money laundering um, and, and some rules around know your customers so that that anti-money laundering space building on the financial space makes a lot of sense in terms of building uh, around areas where we have commonalities already. That's something that we um, <clears throat> have have done. And I know Australia has uh, done as well as other jurisdictions, something that that's, uh, the Nordics have leaned heavily on the um, finance and the anti-money laundering space as well. So I think that's a lot of great area uh, that that financial space is one that we can build on and, and and work from um, while we continue to identify those areas that overlap, those areas that may not overlap. Trust frameworks are great tools for risk management in that space, while our, our methodologies may have some differences in terms of, of how we reach that point to, to try to be um, interoperable. So I think we have some great building blocks to work from. Another tool in the space around international interoperability, I think, is we are launching our Voila Verified program. This is our Trustmark program uh, to yep, actually yep. verify organizations that have um, been uh, verified as Pan-Canadian Trust Framework compliant. Um, so we love to see more of those tools and those programs. We know we have you have similar programs in Australia as well. And so uh, we, we hope to see more mappings between those programs. And so we'd love to stay in touch um, with Australia and other jurisdictions as we launch that Voila Verified program because we think that those trust marks are important tools um, on the road to internet international um, interoperability as well. The financial sector is a great place to start because we've all been building on that space already. And uh, it's great to see that we've, we've done that uh, as, a, as, a, as a beginning building block for international interoperability. Fantastic to get that perspective there from Joni, especially where the Canadian banks and state and provincial governments have made so much progress along the same journey that we're now embarking on here in Australia. With our local context in mind, I'm joined now by Olaf Gru, NAB's Head of Products for Digital Identity and Access. Olaf, welcome. And can I start by asking what really stood out for you amongst Joni's observations? Yeah, look, Brad, I have to be honest, I'm a bit of a Joni fanboy, so anything she says stands out for me. But two things in particular that I wanted to highlight in this context. One is when she said, it takes a village that really rang true for me. And something that we talk about, it's a, it needs to be a public sector, private sector collaboration to bring a digital identity uh, to life. But she elevated that by saying we also should have academia 
uh, at the table, which I believe can be a really important contributor to really giving us not only the perspective in the now, but to maybe what does this look like in um, 10, 15, 20 years. The second point is uh, is what was the inclusion part, and it's something that I'm really passionate about. And I I, I sort of couldn't help uh, stopping when you talked about traditional methods of uh, identification. And I'm sure sort of the oldest living culture in Australia has something to say about traditional methods. But and it, it really sort of points to me to the fact that um, we need to be mindful that maybe our um, Western-centric view of the world and how things have to be done can't be the only one. And it's something that, especially if you look at the Prime Minister's speech a couple of weeks back around voice uh, to Parliament, we really need to drive this inclusion from a First Nations um, people's perspective. Yeah, and I think it's a good reminder but also an opportunity for us in, in private sector firms such as the banks that where the established government forms of identification and authentication have not actually achieved the full reach across all sectors of the population that we would like, maybe that's a gap that, that we can help step into and, and at least we should be conscious and mindful that there is a gap there that, that hopefully we can help to bridge. Absolutely great. Um, Olive, um here in Australia, we're, we're pursuing a pretty similar path to that that the Canadians uh, have already progressed on. Um, can Australian consumers and businesses expect to see similar services and opportunities? And how are we at NAB helping to uh, enable that? I think we're vocally, yes. And I'm really pleased to report that um, we have looked at that space long and hard and over the last 18 to 24 months have really tried to get the show on the road and make it something that is not so much a hypothetical uh, but really something that we want to bring to market and where we are collaborating with Australia Payments Plus to bring to life what Joni said when she said a lot of this stems from the payment space and it gives us a lot of the rails that we that we need. And we decided to partner with what's uh, called Connector ID uh, as, a, as a commercial venture to bring a digital identity to the Australian market. It was great that she recapped on that history and that linkage to payments, particularly coming out of the global financial crisis. We've also seen that elsewhere in the world, things like the Singapore Thailand pilot was about linking together their payments and identity systems. So um, a really important reminder there. Um, Joni also mentioned privacy. And, and this is not just in the context that about how we might block the transfer of data, but more about how we can empower the consumer with the choice of what information they want to share and who they want to share it with and who they trust. And this has really been a, a driving tenant for the work that we're doing with Australian Payments Plus, correct? That is, that is very much true. Look, data minimization is something that we are really passionate about and that we want to drive as one of the key elements of this uh, solution. Because if you look at how you have to share your driver's license or your passport or Medicare card, but almost every opportunity that's just not on in today's uh, world where we have, where we are confronted with lots of fraud and scams. But as you said, uh, combined with data minimization, uh, customer choice is really a, a core element of the solution that we want to bring to market so that there's no doubt in the customer's mind as to what is being shared and for what purpose is it being shared. And we really genuinely believe that that is, will, be, uh, will be going a long way to drive trust in this solution. Olaf, thank you. Uh, a lot happening, uh, some really exciting times ahead in digital identity. And of course, a big thank you also to Joni Brennan, the president of the Digital Identity and Authentication Council of Canada, joining us from Vancouver. Uh, ahead on NAB Digital Next, we're going to look at how the major tech platforms have been impacting financial services in China, together with Professor Doug Arna of Hong Kong University. We're also going to look at developments in regtech and subtech, that's technology for regulation and for supervision, 
We're going to do that together with Bill Cohen, the former Secretary General of the Bowl Committee for Banking Supervision. So please join us again then. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for listening on Map Digital Next.